Hello, folks. Dr. Maurice Selby here, medical director, producer, and co-host of Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM and the Health in Harlem podcast. While we strive to bring you the most up-to-date, reliable, evidence-based information to help you live the healthiest life possible, this show does not substitute for an evaluation by a trained and licensed medical professional. It is highly recommended that any advice or recommendations on medications, treatments, nutrition, fitness, preventive services, etc. be implemented under the guidance and supervision of your primary medical provider or appropriate specialist. With that said, we hope that you enjoy and learn from our program, and please be sure to let us know how we can best serve you in future shows. Hello, ladies and gentlemen of the listening audience. My name is Maurice Selby. My name is Michael Holmes. My name is Reed. And you're listening to the one and only Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM New York and the Health in Harlem podcast featured on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and what else are we on? Amazon Music. Uh, We're all over the place now, man. But yeah, welcome to Health in Harlem, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, just want to say that I've been maybe not gloomy, but just thinking about what is about to happen um, this year. And normally around this year, we would be sort of, you know, gearing up for flu season and just talking about the flu in itself, the influenza virus um, and, and what is to come, how bad the season is going to be. Um, but this year we have the specter of COVID-19 and this pandemic. And so all of the concerns are compounded now, especially when we look at what we have recently passed as far as milestones, 200,000 deaths here in the United States, 1 million worldwide, um, and infection rates that in many parts of our country here in the United States, uh, infection rates that are increasing. And here we are, the fall is just starting, temperatures are dropping, um, seeing less people outside my window, walking their dogs and doing their thing, running outside and stuff. And so everybody's going indoors. And guess what? We typically see around this time a spike in uh, influenza cases gradually developing in the fall and winter. And so that's what's been on my mind. Now, quick question for uh, Reed and Michael. You guys got your flu shot? Not yet. Yeah, definitely right. not, not this year. Okay. Well, me, my, me neither. Okay. I don't, I don't have mine yet either. Um, but you, you guys got it last year? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. When I had to go uh, work at sites for my school, I, I was required to get it. And so okay. I'm actually going to need to get it again because I am once again working at sites in like another month. So that's what's up, actually. I'm actually impressed because according to the CDC, flu vaccination coverage amongst adults greater than 18 years of age was only 45% um, in this country. Yeah, that's about on average, like each year, um, just a little above 40% of the population gets vaccinated for influenza. 
And so hopefully by the end of this program, ladies and gentlemen, we can improve upon that. And we're going to talk about why, essentially. Um, that is that is really the key uh, for tonight. So even if you haven't done it in the past, just at least this is something that we really need to consider. Um, and if it's not for yourself, I would say for those around you and your community, for your loved ones, especially older individuals, um, even young children, and overall for, for really just the um, well-being and functionality of our healthcare system as a whole, because there is a real possibility of um, our resources being overwhelmed as far as healthcare institutions, hospitals. Um, and we, we've seen what happened in New York just in the spring. Um, if there was any period in my career where I felt like totally helpless and overwhelmed, that was it. Um, just those few weeks this past spring in New York City. And I think any provider listening to this program would definitely attest to that. The experience was horrible and we could be in the same, a similar spot if we don't start working to address this now. But yeah, that's, that's where we are, ladies and gentlemen. We have this uh, influenza season coming up and essentially this is something that has always been around, right? At least for the last hundred years uh, since the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918, um, we've just had these sort of circulating strains each and every year. And now here we are again, about to really just get back into the same season, the same cycle. Let's talk about influenza alone, right? And let's go back to the past. Um, when we were congregating in restaurants, <laughs> um, there was no such thing as social distancing and everybody was living their happy, healthy lives and uh, trading influenza viruses in the process. <laughs> um, whether it was over a cup of coffee or you touch the subway pole that somebody just sneezed it right into their hand and touched that pole um, or sneezed right into your face or coughed in your face on the subway. Um, that was life of the past. And in that time, there, there were 49, between 49,000 and 400,000 hospitalizations each year, um, right? Each and every flea season. We've seen sort of these ranges um, with each flu season that, that went by. And with that, ranging from 30,000 to in excess of 70,000 deaths per year. Um, now, there are many different factors that affect how bad a flu season is, right? A particular strain, um, whether a particular strain is predominant, um, especially when we talk about H3N2 strains being uh, prevalent, that is a more virulent or more severe strain that can be present. Um, factors such as the unemployment rate. And we actually talked about some literature um, in our prior episode um, that clearly showed that there was a correlation between the unemployment rate and the number of influenza infections in the country. Um, and they actually <laughs> convincingly showed that, right, when more people are out at work and sort of out there in the environment engaging one another, the increase in the influenza infections, we would see an increase in those infections. And so, you know, here we are um, with that very same specter out there, right, influenza. And as we said, those numbers of hospitalizations, the numbers of deaths, um, people that go on to have complications from that illness, we have that at the baseline. But now we also have on top of that uh, COVID-19. And so we have this potential 
for um, uh, unfortunately a lot of really ill individuals. Now, one thing too that was uh, we really didn't understand at the pro- at the outset of this um, pandemic. I remember sort of practicing and and some of the early literature, you know, looking at co-infection rates. It seemed that they were relatively low. Um, and when we talk about co-infection, we're talking about an infection with more than one pathogen, right? So whether it is, um, you know, a virus with a superimposed bacterial infection on top of it, um, infections with other viruses, um, things like fungi, uh, all of these things uh, in terms of co-infection, it was just something that we did, just did not really understand about this disease. And if anything, we thought that it was not very high. However, there is some literature showing co-infections as high as 50% among non-survivors. So those individuals that had severe disease and, and ultimately succumbed or passed away from this illness, um, it was shown that these infections, these co-infections could be as high as 50% among those non-survivors. And that included bacterial co-infections with common bacterial infections like that are typically responsible for pneumonia, such as streptococcal pneumoniae, staphylococcus aureus, Klebsiella pneumoniae, atypical bacterial organisms uh, such as Klebsiella pneumoniae and uh, mycoplasma and Legionella, and also other viral agents have been shown to co-infect humans along with metanumovirus, rhinovirus, and of course, influenza. And so that's why this is such a a huge deal um, because and I don't think it really takes a scientist or anybody with a degree in medicine to understand this, right? But, um, you know, two is more than one. <laughs> you can imagine that if you got two viral entities in your system causing complications, that your outcomes are likely to be worse. And that's something that that we've definitely uh, sort of seen that with um, these patients. So, man, you know, I feel like we're always... We're not always negative, right? We, we we just like to get good information out there, but this is another real thing that that's sort of out there on the horizon. Mm. And um, unfortunately, looking at the past rates of, of vaccination, you know, is something that we can definitely improve upon and give us uh, another barrier to this being something that can really overwhelm our systems. Absolutely, yeah. You're getting the vaccine for the same reason that you're wearing a mask when you go outside now, you're trying to protect others around you. So if you're not leaving the your house without a mask, maybe you should go ahead and get the the flu shot as well. Hmm. Yeah. But I, I feel like oh sorry, I, go no, you go, I just, Michael. I was just going off your point where you saying, you know, we're always being negative, like in a joke manner, but like I you know, I I'd like to say that, you know, health and health outcomes aren't necessarily like when we're talking about these things to help you guys stay healthy, we're not we're not trying to tell you about these, uh, you know, that the future's bleak or anything like that. We're just helping you so you stay on this healthy path, you know. And I think I think that's that's a pretty noble noble deal. All right, guys. So I'm just curious, what do you guys hear around you as far as reasons for people not getting the influenza vaccine? I mean, one common one that I've heard uh, is if someone's allergic to eggs, then sometimes they don't get that vaccine because some of those vaccines are manufactured using eggs. True story. Okay. Anything you got, Michael? You know, I just, I think people just really don't see it as big of an issue. Like even, 
I mean, even as a personal like anecdote, like in the past, like I never really saw a big, you know, incentive to go get a flu vaccine. If anything, it was like my mom, like pushing me to go get a vaccine. I was like, oh, I'll be okay. I feel like I'm strong enough. Like it, I just, I guess maybe I just didn't see it as uh, prevalent around me. I'm not sure. But especially nowadays when everything's so, uh, you know, uh, conspiracy, you know, that I feel like that's even less of an incentive for some certain people to go out and get vaccines. Well, I've heard people cite a number of different things uh, just from uh, at work, right, in my practice, um, in the emergency department, um, even just in terms of conversations with friends and family. And they have a number of concerns. So one of them, right, being that the vaccine is uh, vaccines are typically not 100 percent effective, uh, which is a fact. Right. That's not an an argument. Right. That's Mm -hmm. not misinformation. That's not false. That's a fact. These vaccines are not 100 percent effective. Um, Another thing is just the sort of uh, availability and sort of who pays for it, especially for uninsured individuals. Right. And it's like, why make that investment, especially for younger healthier individuals where they're like, well, it's just a flu, right? Like, why should I go and invest in that when I can put my dollars elsewhere? Mm-hmm. Um, those are some of the, the common things. And then, of course, we have the vaccine hesitancy um, at large, especially among parents and uh, amongst groups out there that are against vaccination and some of the information that we see coming out of those groups. Um, that, too, has been something that is cited as um, individuals not really choosing to um, take these these vaccinations. And with that said, actually, within those groups, there are some legitimate concerns, I will say, as well. Right. We're not even going to just write them off because some of the things that those groups talk about do indeed. Right. Those are things that we need to discuss when we talk about vaccinations and immunizations um, and, and making sure that these are uh, decisions that, or, or interventions that are going to benefit people, um, and taking into account risks that do come with those medications or these medications or interventions. Um, but another thing really that I think we need to look at is that, right. We have, let's say COVID this new illness, um, We've seen the complications resulting from that. We've seen the public health fallout from this. We've seen right some things that we've developed to respond to this um, as a nation and really around the world. Right, right now, social distancing. We talk about wearing masks, and we talk about the development of a vaccine that one day hopefully can get us back to some sense of normalcy. And if we look back in the past to the that initial outbreak in 1918. And the fallout after that, the public health fallout, the economic fallout after that, and the response of researchers and really just the whole scientific community at that time, and finally the development of this vaccine, um, it's just another thing in our, in our arsenal to fight this illness, Right. Um, and it's something that right when we, we're, we're struggling, trying to find ways to intervene on COVID and and really to protect ourselves and protect our communities. And here we have this intervention that has been tried and proven, 
even if it is only at times, right, as far as its effectiveness in any given season, right, at the highest, probably somewhere in the, in the mid to high 50% range um, as far as its effectiveness. But we know that it is for, right, if it is in the 50s, for one out of two individuals, it's going to be effective in giving that individual some immunity. We do know, right, study after study has shown that even if you're not immune to um, influenza virus, that you, if you do come down with a case of influenza, you are more likely to have milder symptoms, right? Um, and if we look at the sort of rates of hospitalization, the mortality rates resultant from influenza alone, and we're not even talking about COVID, but we talk about just influenza, uh, we've seen that uh, uh, decreased rates of all of these complications in populations that are vaccinated. And it could be complicated, right? Looking at the effectiveness of these vaccines um, in general, just off of um, looking at particular populations and looking at the uh, different types of studies and how they're conducted. Um, that too can also influence the results of these uh, studies. But the majority of the literature points towards these being effective interventions, effective and safe interventions um, that we can really capitalize on uh, in this time. And so that is why that 45% is a real problem, right, at this time, because um, when we look at what is going on with COVID, um, its rate of spread, the complications associated with it, um, and we look at influenza and the uh, rates of spread, especially amongst children, which we know that this is right. The, right now, there's controversy on how well children can spread COVID-19 um, or SARS-CoV-2. Right? Uh, you know, we know that they're they're very good carriers of this illness, but how well they can transmit it—that's something that's up for debate and currently being researched. But we do know uh, for a fact that children right bring home influenza and they spread it amongst families. And when we look at this intervention and its possibility of decreasing that spread, in addition to what we're already doing with social distancing, with mask wearing, we're talking about something that can really um, get us out of the danger that we, we currently are in or facing with the, uh, an upcoming flu season on the horizon. Yeah, and and speaking off of that, with like as you said, like this this mask wearing and these like, I think like the the fact that we are becoming like kind of uh like very precautious about the way we are you know spreading germs and stuff is actually uh kind of beneficial in the in the sense that you know mm -hmm. because the flu is such a transmittable thing, um even that might uh you know, like people are being more cognizant of these things when they're like, you know, if they're not sneezing while covering their mouth and stuff like that. Like in in today's society, it's kind of looked at like a negative thing. Like people will like snarl at you if you don't like cover your mouth when you sneeze or wearing a mask. Um, I did that in the past, even before COVID, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, exactly. But now, but now that it's such like a negative uh, connotation in, in uh, today's time, it's kind of like, it's kind of cool seeing that, oh, maybe we should be more cognizant of like how we're spreading our germs and stuff. 
when I'm taking the train, I'm almost afraid to sniffle, even if it's just seasonal allergies. People I don't will give you that, <laughs> yeah, that evil eye, like turn around and give you the stank look, like really, yo, yeah. really, you're gonna sneeze around me, yeah. And 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 while being distance, right, even six feet away, people are looking at you like, for real, man, like goodness, yeah. Why why did you leave your house today? Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of right, something that can help us decrease the spread. And if you want to be selfish about it, right, <laughs> because um, and I think that's where it all starts, right, with yourself, protecting yourself from this illness, um, uh, considering vaccination as, a, as a, a real intervention for yourself, right? If you are, especially um, with what we have going on economically right now, you can't afford to be sick, right? And this is one way that you can protect yourself if you're out there um, delivering meals to people. If you're out there on the front lines as a healthcare worker, I mean, that's mandatory for me. So I definitely have to get it in order to, uh, to practice. Um, but if you are out there in some fashion, engaging people to make ends meet for yourself or to handle your business, then this is something that I think you should strongly consider. Um, because as we said, we have COVID out there and to sit there and have to worry about, uh, something like influenza, which we have, these tried and true interventions for, um, you can just take that that off of your mind for a bit, right? And, and put that by the wayside so you can focus on everything else. Um, it's just something that I think makes a lot of sense. And at the minimum, at least consider and gather for yourself information that you can make a good informed decision on when it comes to uh, this vaccine. So let's just talk about some, some other things, right? Specifics as far as the uh, vaccination itself, because I think there is a good amount of um, uh, misinformation out there when we talk about influenza vaccines. And one of which I heard on another podcast, right, talking about um, this vaccine being used to prevent COVID-19, which is totally false. Mm -hmm. um, that is not the intention of influenza vaccine. And right now, um, one reason why you might see out there uh, in the news media, people talking about this is because they're talking about exactly what we're, we're talking about here on Health in Harlem and that, right, with COVID running rampant in our communities, um, to have two viral infections, especially respiratory infections, um, running rampant, you know, we just can't afford that, especially with, with, with our um, capacity in our health systems as it stands today. And if we look at influenza, just like COVID-19, individuals that are more susceptible to having bad outcomes, right? Those are people that are older in age, so older than 65, especially. Those are people with comorbid illnesses, such as diabetes, heart disease, chronic lung diseases like COPD and asthma. Um, also, again, with influenza, right? Well, we know uh, with COVID, the rates of infection and the severity of infection amongst children is on the lower side, although there are some children that do have complications from COVID. Um, children under five don't do well with influenza. And that's another population when it just comes to influenza by itself, right? Even the pre-COVID days, but especially now, um, that is a, a very susceptible population um, that can be, that can really have bad outcomes, including um, complications such as pneumonia, respiratory failure. Um, of course, those uh, children will be hospitalized 
And then that sets them up for other infections, right? Other co-infections such as bacterial pneumonias um, and further complications. And that's, that's a very real thing. Even before COVID, we knew that children were more susceptible um, to this disease. And then we also look at other populations, including um, uh, pregnant women, uh, individuals with immune compromise, um, just tend to have uh, worse outcomes when it comes to influenza just by itself. And then when you add COVID on top of all of that, right, um, then we just increase the chances of individuals having bad outcomes um, if they if they have uh, co-infection with this illness. Um, and then finally, again, we just talk about the healthcare systems as it stands, and we see what happened in New York and really all throughout the country. Um, aside from just the infection itself, sending people to the hospital, people being hospitalized from complications from this illness, we also saw the fallout uh, from individuals sitting at home with heart attacks, right? Um, maybe they just had chest pain. Maybe they had this sort of uh, weakness all over their body, shortness of breath. And rather than go to the hospital, right, uh, they were just too scared because they saw what was happening in the hospitals with uh, COVID-19. And so individuals sat home and unfortunately had complications related to heart attacks. People with undiagnosed strokes and, you know, um, resulted from that permanent disability. Yeah. And so unfortunately, you know, hospital systems being overwhelmed, it's not even just the being overwhelmed from uh, these infections itself, but it's also the fallout that we see from people just not getting the care that they need for other conditions. And so that's where, um, that's why this is just such a, a big issue at this time. So um, yeah, we got to get, we got to get the vaccines, man. We got to get it done. And I thought, I thought it was interesting. You noted that um, like influenza uh, as a virus in itself is more uh, common or more, more dangerous, you'd say in like younger, like children, like younger populations. And it, it's kind of like uh, contradictory to what, you know, the popular belief of what uh, COVID is, where it's like it has milder symptoms in uh, younger patients. And I think that that co-infection right there just shows you like, you know, even like if you would have mild symptoms with COVID, uh, because influenza is also so so dangerous in younger adult, uh, younger children, um, just that co-infection interaction right there is, is something to be concerned about. Yeah. And we don't know the risk of that co-infection, right? In children, maybe having both COVID and uh, influenza, that's something that we really don't even know about yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so imagine children, right, going back to school um, with these pretty low vaccination rates. Um, and, and, and amongst children, the rates are higher, right, because schools mandate um, these vaccines, especially amongst children being in schools. So thankfully, they are higher. But think about co-infections in children, children being bringing these uh, illnesses home to spread amongst their families and the vulnerable individuals in those families. Um, we're just increasing the chances that um, people are going to have bad results. Um, and so that's why it, it is it is something that is, you know, as the recommendation was previously, it's essential. This is the recommendation that uh, really everybody be vaccinated. Um, that can tolerate the vaccine. And, and a question for you, just speaking on the fact that, um, you know, we do get an, and it's recommended we get like an annual flu shot uh, 
maybe that's another reason why people may not get the flu shot. They just don't know why they would need to get it annually. You know? That's a great question. Um, either of you care to take that one? Sure. Yeah. Um, so unlike other viruses that uh, have DNA inside of their, it's a virus is essentially a protein surrounding some sort of genetic information, whether that's DNA or RNA. Um, so a lot of things like we get the MMR vaccine when we're younger and we get that once in our life and that's it. We're protected for the rest of our lives. Um, influenza on the other hand has RNA inside of the, the viral capsule. So when DNA copies itself inside of your cells, there's mechanisms in that copying uh, machinery that will prevent mistakes. Uh, so a, a mistake would be is similar to a mutation, is analogous to a mutation. Um, so when DNA copies itself, it prevents mutations. But when RNA copies itself, it doesn't have that machinery to correct those mutations. Um, so it mutates at a much, much higher rate than other, va- than other viruses. Um, and because of that, it can mutate enough over the course of a year or two that the previous year's vaccine no longer covers the new strain. Yeah, exactly. And specifically, we had there are these uh, hemagglutinin and neuraminidase proteins on the surfaces of these uh, viral particles that we create these vaccines to sort of target, right? Our immune systems to sort of um, be able to create antibodies to target those proteins, especially the hemagglutinin protein. And anybody out there has uh, heard just the classification of these viruses, you might've heard of H1N1, especially during the the swine flu outbreak. Um, And that's what they're talking about, those proteins this is how we really identify and classify these types of viruses based on those two proteins that are on that surface. So, um, and mainly, as we said, the hemagglutinin protein. Um, one thing that we do know is that that hemagglutinin, um, the the sequence in the RNA for that hemagglutinin protein changes from season to season. As Reed so eloquently stated, thank you very much. Um, it is very prone to mutations, and so that's why. It is that variation in that protein each uh, winter where uh, it's essentially like our immune system being presented with uh, uh, something that it just can't recognize, right? Um, it's like literally um, every year the, these influenza viruses are going out and getting new winter coats, right? Before they had the, <laughs> it's like before you would be able to spot it from a mile away, it was like a, a red, uh, you know, bubble jacket. Um, just like you would see your boy out there in the winter amongst everybody with the snow on the ground, right? The contrast, you're like, yo, that's my boy with the red jacket. Well, now he's wearing a blue jacket. And so you can't find your friend amongst all of these people with um, these various colored jackets. Um, And so that's essentially, that's the best I could do as far as analogies. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, But that's what the virus is doing, right? Um, In its most basic sense, that's what's happening uh, each winter. And this is why, unfortunately, at this time, and there are um, projects in development, there is research being done on um, vaccines that target the same proteins, but in different regions that are not as variable, um, where we can just have hopefully one vaccination that lasts, that gives lasting immunity um, for a much longer duration. But we just don't have that available um, at this time. And that's why we have to 
get these vaccinations uh, each year. And so when we talk about the vaccines um, themselves, there are mainly uh, two different types. Um, one is an inactivated virus that is raised in um, embryonated, embryonated uh, hen's eggs. And so those are the ones that individuals with egg allergies, they will be um, you know, excluded from getting those, especially if they've had severe allergic reactions to eggs in the past. Um, and then we have a live virus, uh, live attenuated preparation that is given intranasally. Um, so the inactivated virus typically given through an intramuscular injection, meaning it's injected into the muscle, either the shoulder um, or in many times the thigh or even the buttocks. Um, and the live attenuated preparations are given intranasally. And the way that these vaccines are developed each year is that um, scientists, researchers, virologists, vaccine developers um, basically look at patterns throughout the world to determine which viruses or which uh, subtypes are likely to be dominant um, in any given population around the world. And then they take those viruses and sort of, um, as we said, culture them in these um, hen's eggs um, in the context of the live attenuated virus. They actually use recombinant DNA techniques to um, enhance those sequences in order to create um, these weakened viral particles that can then be given in the nose to stimulate um, immunity. Uh, and so typically there are um, two A strains that are put into these, um, into these preparations. So you have two A strains and usually you have one B strain that makes up a trivalent um, vaccine. And more recently, there's been developed uh, quadrivalent vaccine preparations that include two A strains and two B strains that are dominant um, from all different uh, uh, analyses all throughout the world. But this is really what affects, right, in any given season, how effective the vaccine is among, amongst other factors. Um, that is why we don't always see um, these vaccines being 100% effective in stimulating uh, lasting immunity to individuals for that year. Right. And so that affects the effectiveness of the vaccine. Um, but also there are population specific um, reasons why a vaccine uh, might not be as effective um, as we would like it to be. Um, yeah. So. You, you, would you say it's, it's more like predictive as opposed to like, you know, like a definite uh, yes. prevention? Yeah. Correct. Like the and the, but one thing that's too that has been uh, sort of experimented with recently is increased dose. Um, doses of these vaccines um, in order to stimulate that immunity. And uh, pretty much the, the one population that seems to have benefited from those investigations are the elderly. And so what you might see is this higher dose vaccine um, of the or higher dose of the um, attenuated or the um, inactive vaccine preparations being given to older adults. Um, that is because of those studies in which they gave a higher dose and it's been found to give um, uh, additional protection to older individuals. Um, and so, you know, this is um, something out there that we just really need to, um, as we said, consider, especially looking at what's going on um, around us uh, in the context of this COVID-19 um, 
pandemic. Now, one more question that I think commonly comes up is which one is most effective? And from the available evidence that we have, there is no one preparation that has been deemed to be more effective at stimulating immunity um, than others. And so really what it boils down to is what's available in your area as far as um, which vaccine preparation is, is best for you to receive. Um, as we said, individuals that have that allergy to egg, they might benefit from the uh, intranasal uh, preparations. Um, older individuals, right, that increased dose uh, can be beneficial uh, to them. And essentially, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices uh, just recommends um, pretty much all individuals greater than six, month of, six months of age um, get a flu shot. That's that's basically it. Get your flu shot. That's the message of the day. All right. If we can't make it any clearer than that, if you want to know the summary to this show, that is the message. And, and now one more thing too: those individuals out there, um, as we said on Health in Harlem, right, we try to give you the complete information to make these decisions. And so there are adverse effects of vaccinations. Let's face it. Right. And, um, you know, we do see individuals that typically develop um, soreness, so local tissue reaction, you might have a, a sore shoulder. Imani actually got hers yesterday. And I remember I bathed her. And as I was washing that area, she's like, yo, be careful. Like, oh, stop. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yes, of course. She got it um, in her left shoulder. And so when I was washing there, it annoyed her. Like, it, it bothered her a little bit. Um, today, she's running around fine. She's being a character, no fever or anything. Imani is her normal, playful self. Um, you know, she might develop a fever, but that is something that uh, can happen with influenza vaccinations. Um, and essentially, that's your body responding to um, the intervention. That's your body developing. You can look at it as your body's responding to it and developing immunity. And that's just a sign that it is working. And actually, you guys just said it like that, right? You've heard people say that they the vaccine gave them the flu. Um, maybe in terms of the live attenuated one, yes, we gave you the flu, <laughs> like, but you're going to develop immunity to it um, and prevent right the, the the real flu down the line. The body aches, the fevers and chills and being out of work for five to seven days. That's what that uh, small inoculation is looking to prevent down the line. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yes, you you that's what we want to. See, and then there are individuals that do have more uh, severe reactions, including anaphylactic or severe allergic reactions. There are individuals that have uh, even more rare uh, reactions, um, including things like seizures, individuals that can have um, things like encephalitis. But these are, right, in terms of, if we were, were to approximate your chances of having that that's it's on the, the level of like hitting the lotto i would even say hitting the lotto like twice in the same <laughs> week probably like yeah. that's how rare um it is and so you know one thing that we do want to acknowledge is that yes there are adverse effects just like with any medication that is administered for any ailment um just like uh you know there's there's risks with that but the risks in comparison to the benefits the potential benefits um, especially in the COVID era, the benefits far away the risks at this point. Absolutely. Yeah. I just want to touch on some misinformation regarding the vaccine. 
Mm -hmm. I'm sure that everyone's heard before there's a group of people that claim that vaccines cause autism, which has been shown to not be true. Um, The original person who published that paper has since had their medical license revoked. It's just absolutely not true. Um, There's also another group of people, uh, which is becoming a little bit more popular, where they believe that the vaccine is how the government is putting microchips in them. That's how they're watching them. Again, not true. The government isn't putting microchips in your vaccines. That sounds like that'd be a pretty expensive program that uh, (laughs) Republicans would not allow to. No, (laughs) obviously. You talk about big government. I don't think Mitch McConnell would stand for that. So uh, probably not happening. I would say very probably not happening um, as far as the microchips. Uh, But yeah, keep coming with the conspiracy theories. They can be entertaining. Unfortunately, there are some individuals that um, believe that stuff. But we're hoping that if you're a listener of Health in Harlem, you'd understand that that is false information. I'm not even going to say misinformation. That is just false. Um, But then you do have the misinformation, as Reed said, like, you know, the link between autism and um, vaccination, any vaccination has been debunked countless times. And uh, yeah, as you said, Andrew Wakefield, the initial sort of uh, person responsible for that misinformation, um, he's been, yeah, his license and stuff has been revoked um, in Great Britain and you know, even that article initially that he published um, has been retracted um, in the Lancet. And so it's debunked. I mean, that's it. End of discussion. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll table that for another show um, yeah. with some individuals that are proponents of it, because I would like to be challenged <laughs> by those people. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that's that's the message, ladies and gentlemen. Get the vaccine or at least strongly consider getting the vaccine. And um, as we close out, we will also just reiterate the importance of social distancing. Um, That too, just like with COVID, can be a very effective um, intervention in terms of stopping the spread of influenza. So just as wearing a mask can stop those uh, viral particles, those SARS viral particles from being spread to your um, best friend or your loved one in your household this winter when you're snuggled up next to the fireplace, well, no, you probably wouldn't wear a mask then, but <laughs> just, but still, masks work. We know that social distancing can also curb the spread um, of COVID and influenza. Um, great hand hygiene. I'm not going to just say good, but great hand hygiene, washing for that 25 seconds, sing happy birthday if you need that to aid you in um, determining the length of you washing your hands and washing your hands before and after meals. Um, especially after you use the bathroom so you're not like putting feces on doorknobs and stuff. Um, it's just basic stuff, basic hygiene. Come on, folks. Everything you're taught is as a child, you know? Just keep it Yeah, up. man. <laughs> um, if you are coughing and sneezing about on the subway, please do so into the crook of your elbow and try to do it away from any individuals that are around you. And hopefully you have your mask on even then while you're doing that um, nastiness. And also in the household, you're going to clean and disinfect frequently touched surfaces in the home, at work or at school. And even though, you know, recently it's been coming out that surfaces are not a big um, spreader in terms of uh, the spread of COVID-19. I mean, still, again, this is basic hygiene stuff, right? We want to wipe these surfaces down. There are other things that can hang out on surfaces, especially in kitchens, you know, things like salmonella and all of these uh 
enteric organisms that can give us not only uh, um, things like COVID and stuff, but also GI illnesses and nausea, vomiting and diarrhea. So we just want to be clean in general in the household, at work, at school. And if you are sick at any point this season, um, this fall or winter season, the best bet for you is going to be to stay home. Um, and I say that for two reasons. One, for the benefit of your colleagues, your classmates, your uh, friends and family that you might go congregate with, um, you will not spread the disease, right? Uh, but also for yourself, especially if you come down with something like influenza or COVID, giving your body the time to rest and recuperate and fight this illness, that is what your body needs. And that's why it is highly advised that you stay home and really just um, support yourself in getting through these illnesses. So, yeah, man, anything else you guys want to add? Yeah, I mean, uh, we talk a lot on this show, not just this episode, but all of our episodes uh, about treatment for illnesses. But by and large, the best way is preventative measures. We talk about colon cancer. We talk about preventative screening. Preventative measure for influenza is getting your vaccine. So by and large, the best way to not get influenza is to get the vaccine. Yes, I'm with you on that. I'm going to roll up my sleeve. Hopefully this week at work, they're offering it now. So I definitely will be getting it um, very yes. shortly. And especially we have a baby on the way, Christine and I. So that's another reason why, I mean, it's just something that has to happen in order to protect um, Imani and the baby, you know, okay. and that's, that's what we got to do. Thank you very much, man. <laughs> and so with that said, ladies and gentlemen, this is Health in Harlem. We appreciate you listening. We also greatly appreciate you sharing this information with anyone that will listen um, around you. So spread the word, not COVID, but spread the good information that you hear on Health in Harlem. And also, we just ask that you like our um, page on Facebook and that even uh, follow us on Facebook, Twitter. You can also follow us on um, Podbean as well and just be on the lookout for future episodes. And also, we do like conversations with you all. So any comments, questions, or concerns that you might have, post them to facebook twitter you can even check out our podbean page and leave your your comments there as well and especially regarding what you would like to hear in future shows that would really help us in getting the information you need to live a happy healthy lifestyle that's what we're about on this show so with that said ladies and gentlemen this show is dedicated to the memory of miss gloria thomas harlem take care of yourself